Hi, this is Tina from Lakewood, California, and you are listening to California Dreaming with the amazing Roseanne on the Orbital Jigsaw Network. This episode of California Dreaming is brought to you by Blueberry. Creating a podcast is not that simple. It's more than just recording yourself and uploading it. To really get your show to be everything you want it to be, you're going to need a little more than that. You need easy and reliable hosting so your time can be spent creating your content, the most accurate download stats so you know if you're reaching the audience that you're wanting to, and a web page that makes setting up totally easy on you and won't take up too much of your valuable time. And Blueberry offers all of this and more for hosts and aspiring hosts alike. Simple media hosting, a fully integrated WordPress website with their PowerPress sites. So if you already have a podcast or you've always dreamed about starting one, head over to www.orbitaljigsaw.com slash dream to sign up and the first month is on us. The Blueberry support team is available to walk you through the steps of migrating your show without losing any subscribers or to get you started in the process of launching your new show. With the first month for free using promo code DREAM, you've got no excuses. So let's get started. As always, I would like to take the time to thank every one of you who continue to support California Dreaming on social media by following us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, as well as for those who have left reviews for the show on Apple Podcasts or whichever platforms you listen to the show on by spreading the word about California Dreaming in listening groups and, of course, for supporting us on Patreon as well. There are currently more than a dozen exclusive bonuses on Patreon, and for as little as $1 a month, you can gain access to all of those episodes as well. The most recent Patreon exclusive is now available, The Tale of a Million Years Ago, where we discuss the murder of newlywed Sherry Rasmussen and the mess that is her killer, disgraced former LAPD detective Stephanie Lazarus. This week, I'd like to thank J.W., Jess H., Lisa R., Sean K., the Nature vs. Narcissism Podcast, Jordan B., Lisa P., Carolyn L., and Mackenzie B. for joining Patreon and supporting our show. And if you would like to make a one-time donation to help support, you can do so through PayPal using our email, californiapod at gmail.com. Again, thank you for all of your support. And one more thing before we get into today's story. I have some news to share with you. The audiobook that I've had the honor to narrate the audio version for, entitled A Sickness in Time by M.F. Thomas and Nicholas Thurkettle, is available for you to listen to now on your favorite podcast directories. In 2038, the human race is in a death spiral, and most people don't even know it yet. Technology was supposed to make us better and stronger, instead is birthing a strange and terrible plague we may not be able to stop. When the young daughter of Josh Scribner, a wealthy tech entrepreneur, starts to succumb to the illness, he dedicates his fortune in a desperate effort to save her life. Working with a friend and celebrated physicist, Josh develops the ability to send objects back through time. Their goal is to recruit an agent in the past who might change our fatal path. In our present day, a broken and traumatized Air Force veteran finds a strange message in the woods, drawing her into an adventure spanning decades. All humanity is at stake, 
as she and her small group of friends become the unlikely heroes taking up the secret fight against our future doom. Each chapter of A Sickness in Time drops weekly, and right now, chapter one is available for your listening pleasure. And if you enjoy the story and you have access to iTunes, you can get a free hard copy of the book autographed by the authors. To get your copy, just be one of the first 30 people to leave a rating and written review, preferably five stars. Email a screenshot along with your mailing address to mfthomasauthor at icloud.com. And Dreamers, message me on any social media platform if you need me to provide you with the email address again, or visit the book's website at www.sicknessintime.com. Dreamers, I'm going to get a little personal for the beginning of this episode. I think I've shared with at least some of you, either here on the show or in our Facebook group, maybe in a private conversation, that for the better part of my life, I have not had the greatest relationship with my mom. I guess the best way to sum it up is I've basically spent a lifetime trying to live up to expectations, which I seem to never be able to do. Atoning for mistakes I've made, even things dating back to adolescence and high school, which I also seem doomed to never be able to do. To please someone who really seems to rather not be pleased, preferring to languish in a perpetual state of contempt and bitterness, and to bend over backwards, inconveniencing everyone else in my life, mainly my daughter and my husband, to be at her beck and call any time day or night. Otherwise, I'd never hear the end of how I treat my mother like the pond scum of my personal priority list. And if you think I'm kidding, well, all I can say is I wish I was. It used to feel like a very lonely, boxed-in place where the population of people who had troubled relationships with their mothers consisted of me and me alone. But the more I opened up about it to some of you listening or others who have interacted with me on social media, the more I realize it's actually a place more crowded than I initially thought. Which doesn't sound great, but for me, it was somewhat of a relief to know that I'm not alone in how I feel about my relationship with my mom. Mother's Day on social media is... I don't know what it is. When I scroll through and see all the wonderful posts people make for their moms and about their moms, I'm over here with my phone, crickets chirping. I go through and I like everyone else's posts and move on. Well, last month, it had been about eight months or so since I even so much as breathed a single word to my mom. I hadn't spoken to her. I just couldn't do it anymore. But there came a time about three or so weeks ago that I needed to break the silence. Those eight months were some of the freest months I had felt in decades. To not be bound by this unspoken obligation to wait on my mom hand and foot simply because of biology. My phone used to ring three or four times a day for demands to run this errand or pick up this prescription or drive me here, or fix my cable box, or to yell at me about something that happened 20 years ago. 
Every time her name appeared on an incoming call, I'd stare at it. And I'd rack my brain for what it is I could have possibly done wrong now. And my anxiety would just take over and it wouldn't allow me to slide to answer. I'd let it go to voicemail, hoping and praying that my phone would somehow miraculously provide me with the transcription of her message, because it almost never did, due to her heavy accent. Then, I would unfairly ask my daughter to call her for me, because I just couldn't deal with it. To not have to deal with that for eight months was like a catharsis. It sounds ridiculous now that I'm saying this out loud, but it felt like my life had shifted into a new dimension where being obligated to things, my job or this podcast, or to my own family, my daughter, my husband, my pets, none of them felt like obligations anymore. I was tending to my life on my own terms and in my own way, and nobody was really telling me how or when I needed to be or do anything. Those eight months were life-changing for me. But I needed to set that aside and talk to my mom. I was going through some changes in my life with my family, and I also knew that her brother, my uncle, had been hospitalized for a couple of weeks by that time, and it was becoming more and more apparent that she was going to need some support. My support, but also from myself and my daughter. We are both only children, My mom is a widow. Her own health has been declining, so it was the right thing for me to do and go and talk to her again. I told her that I did not want to continue on like this, with the not speaking to one another. But I also could not continue on with the way things were before. I just wanted to try for some semblance of normalcy. I told her, I don't want to argue about the past. I want to keep moving forward. I don't want to continue being treated and talked to and yelled at and criticized like a child. I don't want my role as mother to my own daughter to be undermined by her berating and criticizing her for the choices she makes in her life and my support of her choices. For example, my daughter recently joined a church and a couple weeks ago she was baptized as a Christian. When my daughter told my mom she joined a Christian church, She told my daughter, Christianity is for idiots, and she's going to hell. Fortunately, my daughter has a deep understanding of my mother's ways and is able to let those types of statements roll off her back. As for me, and many of you know me really well, I'm sensitive, and I am more sensitive to my mom's disparagements and condemnations. So I wouldn't have even told my mom in the first place that I had joined a church. Dreamers, I didn't even tell her when I got married. And if it wasn't for the fact that I would have had to have eventually shown up with this random baby, I wouldn't have even told her that I was pregnant. But, you know, obviously, I would have had to say something eventually. Anyway, when I finally broke the silence, she became very distraught over my uncle's failing health, as he'd been given quite a grim prognosis. She told me everything she knew about the condition he was in, and later on that same day that we had started talking again, 
My daughter and I ended up taking her down to the hospital to talk to the doctor because there were some decisions that needed to be made. My uncle had never gotten married, nor did he have any children, and my mother, being the eldest of the siblings, was put in charge of his affairs. The doctor at the hospital treating him was Korean, and my mom is Vietnamese, and despite the fact that we were all speaking English, I still had to do the best I could to translate what the doctor was saying into words that my mom could understand. I went home that night, and I kind of felt a little bit better as a daughter that I wasn't not talking to my mom anymore. And the very next morning, she picked a fight with me. I did what I could to just suck it up and tell myself that she's not going to change. She never has. She never will. And I'm just going to have to figure out a way to cope with this the best that I can that doesn't involve shutting her out of my life completely, which I'm still working on. My uncle died three days later. My mom was upset and saddened and this was the third brother that she had lost. We went to the funeral together, and more than anything else, I was glad I broke the silence in time for this. If my mom and I still weren't talking, I wouldn't have gone. I might have not even known he died. And then, a couple more days after that, my mom called me at work to tell me that she fell. Turns out she messed up both of her knees, fractured her shoulder in two places, and had a black eye. So I'm back to getting all the daily phone calls, pick up her pain meds, go to the grocery store, something's wrong with my phone. But her name popping up on my incoming calls doesn't shoot pangs of anxiety through every fiber of my being anymore. Sliding to answer is not a problem. When it comes down to it, if I don't step up and act like an adult about this, then all of this is going to come down on my daughter's shoulders, and that simply is not fair to her. Is it any better now? That remains to be seen. It's a work in progress. More on myself than anyone else. So you've probably put two and two together by now. That today we're going to delve into a story that involves a relationship between mother and daughter. My own personal story that I've shared with you is far from being any kind of happily ever after, not by any stretch of the imagination, but it has been a small step in a direction that's not completely sideways, though I continue to proceed with caution. The walls I've built are massive and aren't going to come down quite so easily. But the mother and daughter we are going to get to know today their story would have a very different ending. In today's 85th episode of California Dreaming, The Tale of the Lady in the Water. Every time our stories take us to Orange County, every time we end up in Newport Beach, I always seem to tell you that violent crime is almost unheard of. But I keep coming up with these stories that are, well, violent. So I guess I'm going to have to stop trying to convince you that Newport Beach is this affluent beachfront utopia because you're probably not going to believe me. In all seriousness, it is a very beautiful and safe community. It's just when crime happens down there, the stories, for some reason, tend to be extraordinary. And they end up on our show. 
On September 13, 2006, the Newport Beach Police received a call from Newport Harbor. There was a body floating in the water. When investigators arrived at the scene, the body had been removed and placed on the deck of the nearest boat slip. The body had been wrapped in some bed linens, sheets, and the mattress pad. Inside was the body of a woman, who to them appeared to be in her 50s. It was obvious she had been stabbed to death, and she had been stabbed a lot. And they had not a clue who this woman was. So the first order of business would be identifying this woman discovered floating in Newport Harbor. If you hearken back to our episode 65, which was the story of the murder of Jasmine Fiore, she had been murdered and mutilated in a manner that was intended to make identifying her difficult. The medical examiner eventually resorted to searching the serial numbers located on Jasmine's breast implants in order to make a positive identification. The same technique had to be done for the lady in the water. Her name was Barbara Ann Mullinex, and at the time of her death, she was 56 years old and a resident of Huntington Beach. She worked part-time as an actress, only in bit roles and extra work, nothing that would have necessarily made her a household name. Barbara had suffered 52 stab wounds. Investigators would describe this as overkill. And this is probably the most disturbing detail of the whole story. So if you're squeamish, you might want to fast forward about 30 seconds right now. 52 was a lot of stabbing. Not only that, one of the weapons used to stab her was still embedded in Barbara. A butter knife. And it pierced straight through her eye and into her brain. It would appear as though this killing was not only personal, it was designed to torture, designed to cause her a great deal of pain and suffering, which means the individual who made Barbara this way was known to her quite well, quite intimately. So that left investigators asking, who would want Barbara Mullinex dead and why? Well, Barbara had once been married to Bruce Mullinex. The couple met sometime back in the 80s, Bruce having been attracted to Barbara's vivaciousness and outgoing personality. In an interview he gave to CBS, of Barbara, he said, She was very opinionated. She wasn't afraid to tell somebody what she thought. To me, that was attractive. It was different. I kind of liked that. I was taken by her. Though Barbara was almost 10 years older than Bruce, they paid no mind to the age difference. In late 1987, the then 27-year-old Bruce and 36-year-old Barbara tied the knot. It would be the third marriage for Barbara and Bruce's first. Living in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma, it wasn't long before their only child Rachel came along. And reflecting back upon her childhood, Rachel would recall a fun, happy, loving home, stating, I had a lot of fun with my mom. She had a wild and free spirit, fun to be around. I was spoiled. 
It was like Disneyland. My life was really, really, really good. Rachel described her relationship with Barbara as having been one with a special, unique closeness. According to Rachel, she adored her mom, and her mom adored her. But the marriage between Bruce and Barbara eventually began to slowly come apart at the seams. Barbara had always been a social drinker, and so had Bruce, but as time went on, the alcohol consumption began to increase in quantity and frequency. It took its toll on the marriage. Things started going south, and the downward spiral would eventually hit bottom, the marriage finally ending in divorce after less than five years in 2002. Bruce, really wanting a fresh start and wanting to put a little distance between himself and his now ex-wife, picked up and moved halfway across the country to Huntington Beach, California. From what I can gather from the information I found online, the split was somewhat acrimonious, and getting that divorce from Barbara, it brought Bruce a renewed measure of freedom, at least for a time. Once he was gone, Barbara struggled financially. Though Bruce was providing alimony and child support payments, It was apparently not enough for her to live independently and raise Rachel. So in 2005, three years after the divorce, Bruce begrudgingly agreed to have his ex-wife and daughter come out to California and live with him. His apartment was small. This whole thing would be far from ideal. But he did it anyway, as he did not want to see his daughter and her mom struggle in such a way. It wasn't going to be the most idyllic situation for either party, particularly for Bruce. But for Barbara, she immediately fell in love with California. They were in Orange County, but it's really only a hop, skip, and a jump away from Hollywood, and she had stars in her eyes. She always had this aspiration to be in TV or in the movies, and she actually made that happen for herself, to an extent. She found work as an extra, along with some walk-on roles. It was really a dream come true for Barbara, and she was enjoying every minute of her newfound career. The move to California was the perfect thing for her at this time in her life. But Barbara's life would be violently cut short when she was so viciously stabbed more than four dozen times and dumped into Newport Harbor, one city over, from where she resided with her ex-husband and now teenage daughter. Not only had Barbara been stabbed, it seemed as though she had been stabbed with as many as three, possibly four different knives, including the one that I mentioned that had remained embedded in Barbara's eye. What's more, her killers took some time as they went about the process of disposing of Barbara. She had been wrapped up in those sheets and mattress pad. That led investigators to surmise that Barbara was attacked and stabbed while she was asleep, or at the very least, in her bed. From there, she was placed in a cardboard box that had once been the packaging for a television. And this cardboard box had been taped up with duct tape. Of course, the box didn't hold together once it had been tossed into the water, quickly falling apart. Its contents, Barbara's remains, having been expelled left floating in the harbor until someone made the grim discovery. 
Well, now that investigators were able to uncover Barbara's identity, that solved one major issue. But they quickly began wondering, why had Barbara Mullinex not been reported missing? The next place they needed to go was to the Mullinex's apartment. Those sheets had them believing that she was killed on a bed. Could that bed be inside that apartment? They made a beeline over there, knocked on the door. No answer. Nobody home. No matter. In short order, they had a search warrant in hand, signed and sealed, and let themselves in. First entering into the apartment, things appeared to be in good order. Nothing that indicated a crime, much less a violent crime, had taken place. At least not in the area where one first goes into the home. But a bedroom upstairs revealed a much more chilling scene. And it quickly became clear that this was the place that Barbara's life had been snuffed out. There was a bed frame in the middle of the room, its components broken down, left onto the floor. But there was no bed, no mattress, no box spring, no sheets, blankets, nothing. Once the crime scene investigators came through, they would find blood spatter on the walls of the bedroom, despite the obvious fact that someone had worked fastidiously to clean up the mess that had been made by the bloody attack that had taken place. All of this put together, the crime scene, the ferocity of the killing, the cleanup effort, all of this gave credence to the investigators' belief that the killer and Barbara were known to one another. Investigators immediately turned their sights towards Bruce, the ex-husband. He understood the need to look at him first acknowledging that the ex is typically at the top of the list when it comes to suspects. The fact that they had had somewhat of a strained relationship, a difficult split, and not to mention the fact that they had been living together, essentially as roommates at the time of Barbara's murder, were all legitimate reasons for him to be questioned about his possible involvement. But Bruce wasn't around. Investigators had no idea where he was, and this fact only fueled the suspicion of him. Could he have done this killing? Dumped Barbara's body in the harbor and absconded? Yeah, he could have. Investigators immediately began attempting to track him down, though it would not be a long, drawn-out search. The day after Barbara had been found floating in the water, Bruce reappeared back at his apartment. Detectives were there, waiting for someone, anyone to show up, as Rachel, their daughter, had not been around either. Bruce explained that he was out of town on business, and over the last couple days he was unable to get in touch with either Barbara or Rachel, and he grew quite concerned, so he cut his business trip short and headed home. That's when he was made aware of the horrifying scene that the inside of his apartment had become while he was gone, along with the news that his ex-wife had been killed there. And when detectives informed Bruce that his wife had been murdered, to them, he didn't react in the way they thought or expected that he would. He seemed calm, overly calm. But you know, dreamers, they are looking hard at this man. The simple explanation is usually the right explanation. The ex-husband is usually the one with the biggest motive, means, and opportunity. 
especially since they live together. So naturally, they're looking for signs and red flags when speaking to him. A calm reaction doesn't particularly stand out to me. It's not as though he walked in on a shocking scene. He wasn't the one to make the terrible discovery, nor was he the one that needed to make any kind of panicked 911 call. He had already sensed that something was wrong before he got there, because he couldn't reach Barbara or Rachel. He wasn't exactly having the easiest time living with Barbara either, and by the time she was killed, they had been at least four years removed from their divorce, and the relationship prior to that was rocky anyway, so they weren't necessarily all that close at this point. Bruce was probably trying to absorb everything that's being dumped on him in that moment. So the calm reaction from seeing Bruce in interviews on TV, it seems like that's his default. He appears calm, thoughtful, but detectives saw it as suspicious nonetheless. The situation with Bruce, Barbara, and Rachel was, for lack of a better term, dysfunctional at best. According to Rachel, her parents fought regularly, usually over money. Barbara would tell Rachel that her dad was a big spender and claimed that her mom told her that he was eventually going to have Rachel out walking the streets to earn money in order to earn her keep. If things were so bad, money was so tight, and the relationship between the exes was so volatile, then why in the world would Bruce have agreed to have Barbara and Rachel come to California to live with him? Well, according to Bruce... Rachel pleaded with her dad to let them move there, and he just couldn't turn his daughter down. And as bad as things got between Bruce and Barbara, it seemed that Rachel was dealing with her own set of issues at school when it came to the nature of her home situation. Namely, both Barbara and Bruce's love-hate relationship, not with each other, but rather with alcohol. Rachel explained in her interview with CBS... I was known at school as the girl with the alcoholic parents. She claimed both her parents were drunks, but mom was one of those types that would be described as a mean drunk. And soon Rachel herself as a teen began hitting the bottle as well. She would claim it was a way of coping with her parents' contentious relationship to numb herself, to escape. Eventually she began cutting herself as well. And at least one of her friends, Kelsey Douglas, would confirm Rachel's home life was intense. But in spite of that, Rachel did everything that she could to win her mother's affections, telling CBS she tried really hard to please her mom. And when she couldn't, she just cried. It just really made her upset. I never heard her say anything bad about her mom. She loved her mom. She really did. What was Kelsey's opinion of Barbara? Though never physically abusive, the way she knew Barbara to have treated Rachel, to her, it amounted to emotional and mental abuse. But to Rachel, she understood why her mom behaved the way that she did. She knew her mother had a tumultuous upbringing and early life. Barbara, at the age of 15, had been sexually assaulted, which... I don't have to tell any of you, can be devastating, overwhelming, enduring, and permanently scarring. Rachel knew and understood this, 
so she really wouldn't blame her mom for acting the way she had been towards her. And when Rachel was the same age as her mother when she was assaulted, Rachel came with the news that she was, in fact, pregnant. She eventually went on to terminate the pregnancy, but considering what Barbara herself had gone through in her teen years, she was understanding when Rachel was going through this. She wasn't angry. She stood by her daughter, supported her, loved her. But according to pretty much everyone who knew Barbara, she had a very short fuse and a raging temper. Having been made aware of this detail of Barbara's personality, detectives pondered the possibility that Barbara's drinking caused the tension in the home to boil over and Bruce had just simply had enough. He lost it and he stabbed his ex-wife. Well, that theory, as it would turn out, wasn't going to hold any water for very long. Remember, Bruce had told detectives that when he arrived home, he had been out of town on a business trip during the time the murder had taken place. And his alibi, his whereabouts were easily confirmed. He was not in Huntington Beach when Barbara was killed. He was a few hundred miles north in central California. With that, detectives had to begin to look elsewhere. So, if not Bruce, then who? The more investigators learned about the goings-on within the confines of the Molinex home, they soon came to discover that Rachel had recently become involved in a relatively new love interest, a young man named Ian Allen. He was 21 years old at the time he became involved with Rachel. She was only 17, and she was madly in love with him. And before long, all of Rachel's time, energy, and attention was directed towards Ian and only Ian, leaving Barbara feeling abandoned, lonely, and unimportant to Rachel. Her daughter was 100% all about her boyfriend, leaving everything else in the dust, mom included. Scrambling to figure out what to do out of fear of being not only without a husband, but now her daughter was slipping away from her as well, Barbara began trying to rein Rachel back in. In other words, she tried to start being more of a disciplinarian in order to maintain some measure of control over Rachel. Going from being a spoiled kid with not much in the way of rules or being told what to do, to suddenly having her mother expect her to abide by some new rules that she had come up with in order to put some space between Rachel and Ian, this just wasn't going to fly with Rachel. Problems began to manifest between mother and daughter. Big problems. When Ian first began coming around, Barbara seemed to take kindly to the new young man in her daughter's life. He would come over and help out with some of the household duties as a sort of a way to be able to be around the home, to hang out in a way that Barbara would be okay with. But as the relationship began to grow into something more serious and intense, Barbara seemed to feel like she needed to step up her game in order to vie for Rachel's attention. But only to a point. It became more of a matter of attempting to put some parental controls on the young couple. Once Barbara sunk her teeth into their relationship, she hung on like a rabid animal. 
And if you recall me telling you about Barbara's quick and sharp temper and her penetrating manner in dealing with things, Ian began to see a different side of Barbara, the side of her with the mean streak that usually reared its ugly head while in the throes of a drunken binge. But Barbara didn't need to be plied with alcohol in order to unleash the intimidation, and she definitely intimidated the young man, but not enough to keep Ian away, as before long, the young couple became engaged. But with her mother looming, attempting to lord over her relationship with Ian, Rachel wanted to ensure that her mother would not do something drastic in order to drive them apart. At the heart of this was the age difference between Ian and Rachel, he being 21, her being only 17. Them being together intimately was technically against the law. Would Barbara, in order to exercise control over what her daughter does and who she sees, would she actually go so far as to report Ian? Would she have him arrested for statutory rape? Knowing her mother's volatile and explosive ways, Rachel would put it past her. So she came up with an idea, a contract of sorts. In July of 2006, Rachel wrote up the document. It was short and to the point. To whom it may concern, I give permission to Ian Allen to date our daughter. Both Bruce and Barbara signed it, and Ian carried it with him at all times in his wallet should the occasion arise where he would be accused of statutory rape. And Bruce would confirm that Ian was throwing a monkey wrench into Barbara's future plans with Rachel. From the time that they were married up until the time that we are discussing today, Barbara had all but been completely dependent upon Bruce financially. Even though she was living in his apartment, as was Rachel, he continued to pay Barbara child support and alimony. Well, Rachel was on her way to turning 18 soon, and his payments were going to cease. It was Bruce's belief that Barbara had this plan that Rachel was going to help support her by going to work and getting a job and contributing. But when Ian came into the picture, Barbara saw her plans being threatened. She was doing everything she could to neutralize the threat. But we all know, when it comes to young love... There wasn't going to be anything Barbara could possibly do to come between Ian and Rachel. Absolutely nothing. By late summer of 2006, things hit the fan. Barbara had imposed a strict 1 a.m. curfew, which for a 17-year-old, I think is quite generous, actually. Anyway, there came a night where 1 a.m. came and went, and Rachel still had not shown up at home. And Barbara lost it. She took it upon herself to show up at Ian's house and collect her daughter herself. And she did indeed show up at Ian's house and caused a huge and humiliating scene. Rachel was embarrassed, and according to her, Ian was pissed. Four days later, Barbara was discovered floating in the water in Newport Harbor. With this new information in hand, investigators really wanted to speak to both Rachel and Ian, but both had vanished. 
Bruce soon filled with fear for the safety of his daughter. He had no idea where she was, and if it were true that Ian had something to do with Barbara's death, Rachel's life then, to him, must be in terrible danger. Could Ian have been that angry with Barbara? So angry that it manifested into a homicidal rage? Could Rachel be dead, floating somewhere out there as well? Investigators needed to find them both quickly. They issued an all-points bulletin and a be-on-the-lookout for both of them, along with the vehicle Ian was known to be driving. Detectives had already been somewhat shaken and taken aback by the sheer viciousness of the attack on Barbara. All those stab wounds. It really isn't something you see every day. But as the investigation was unfolding, as the evidence was pointing them in the direction of Ian and possibly Rachel being involved in this, the idea that these two young people could have attacked Barbara with such brutality was an incredibly disturbing aspect of this whole thing as well. When detectives told Bruce that they suspected Ian and Rachel, he simply could not wrap his head around what he was being told. Neither Ian nor Rachel had been seen since Barbara's body had been discovered, and it was their belief that if they were to find one of them, they'd find both of them. And Rachel had not made any attempt to contact her dad either. A search warrant was executed at the home where Ian resided. A look into his computer activity revealed that several hours after the time that they believed Barbara had been stabbed to death, a search for directions had been made, and those directions had been sent to the printer. Someone was looking to head to Tampa, Florida. Fortunately, neither Ian nor Rachel are professionals at anything they are trying to do here. So when a check of Ian's credit card was run and a purchase at a gas station in Sulphur, Louisiana appeared, investigators knew that they were closing in on the couple. Surveillance footage captured Ian's truck approaching a gas pump, him filling up, and Rachel going inside the convenience store to purchase some drinks and snacks. Detectives in California quickly contacted the authorities in the next town that they felt Ian and Rachel would be passing through along Interstate 10, which would be Lafayette Parish. A checkpoint was quickly set up in an effort to cut the couple off. Ian's truck was eventually spotted and they were pulled over. Both of them were ordered out of the vehicle at gunpoint. They were made to lie face down on the pavement. They were handcuffed and taken into custody without incident. As Rachel recalled it, that was a very scary situation treating me like I'm some criminal. Um, you think? Within two days, Orange County detectives were in Louisiana. Ian and Rachel had some splaining to do. In Rachel's interrogation, she was told that she was under arrest for the murder of her mother. But Rachel was prepared with the story at the ready, and she played her hand. Do you know that I was kidnapped? Do you know that? She went on to deny having anything to do with her mother's killing, and the fact that she was being charged as such was shocking and ludicrous. Ian was the one who did it, according to Rachel. She was just another victim of his, not a co-conspirator, as they were attempting to claim. She went on, I was asleep, 
It was the middle of the night. I heard my mom scream my name. I ran into her room, and I saw Ian standing there on top of her, stabbing her. I tried to push him off, and he pushed me off and knocked me out. Rachel claimed to have sustained a head injury serious enough for her to have lost consciousness. And from there, she said she couldn't remember anything until she came to some time later. She found herself in a motel room. Ian had kidnapped her. He tied her up, gagged her, and brought her to this motel. Police contacted the motel that Rachel claimed Ian brought her to, but there was no record of either one of them checking in there. And when Rachel was examined by a physician, no such head wound was apparent nor were there any other injuries anywhere on her body that indicated that she had been in any kind of physical altercation, nor were there any injuries that showed that she had been bound. Investigators were quick to call BS on Rachel's kidnapping story, though that was her story and she was sticking to it. When it came to her mother's murder, she could only stand by, powerless to stop Ian from plunging his knife into her mother over and over. Horrified at what she had just witnessed, she was next forced to be an unwilling participant in the cleanup, the cover-up, and the disposal. Ian also came up with the idea of taking and getting rid of her mother's clothing and other personal belongings to make it look as though Barbara packed up and went somewhere on her own. Um, did she pack her mattress too? Because that would be kind of a weird and awkward and difficult thing to take with you on a trip. To complicate matters even more, Barbara Mullinex lived her life in such a way where if she were to randomly go missing, nobody would actually really take notice, at least not immediately. She didn't seem to have much in the way of a steady social life where she'd be missed by her girlfriends. She didn't have a steady job to report to, so alarms wouldn't be raised that way either. Nor did she interact with the neighbors with any type of regularity. With Bruce out of town and her daughter, yeah, well, you know that situation. Knowing all of this, then perhaps Barbara not having been reported missing isn't all that surprising after all. And once investigators got one look at Rachel in the surveillance footage at that gas station in Louisiana, it was clear to them that she was in no way being held against her will or under any kind of duress. As Ian had gone inside too to use the ATM, Rachel was there perusing the aisles of the store, totally and completely on her own free will. And when she is seen going back towards where Ian was standing, she did so in a very tender, affectionate way. She was told they saw her in this video, and they took her to task about it. If she was so afraid for her life, being held against her will, how is it she appeared to be so calm and so much at ease? Why did she not surreptitiously seek out help from the gas station attendant or try to quietly pass a note onto someone that she needed help? Her answer? Nobody knows what they're going to do in this situation. Nobody. And I was scared. I didn't know what he was going to do next. Again, investigators called BS. They are not buying the story Rachel was spinning that this was her attempt to placate Ian, to try to keep him from losing his temper, to keep him calm. 
To further bolster her story, she claimed that Ian was able to keep her under control by using a gun that he had brought with him from his house. He used it to threaten her life, and she had no choice but to comply. But investigators again discovered evidence to completely contradict that statement. When the gun was eventually sent to the lab for forensic examination, the majority of the DNA swabbed from the surface of the weapon belonged to none other than Rachel Mullinex. Investigators figured that they might have a better chance of getting somewhere closer to the truth and talking to Ian. But when they spoke to him, he actually corroborated the story that Rachel had told, going so far as to admit that he was solely responsible for Barbara's murder, telling detectives in his initial interview, I was going there to threaten her, to scare her, and it got out of control very quickly. I held the knife right to her throat and she started screaming, Rachel, Rachel, help me. He's trying to kill me. And this naturally led to the next line of questioning. Why? What reasons would Ian give for wanting Barbara dead? Well, he never really would say, but investigators came to the conclusion based on the information they uncovered that it was all done at the behest of Rachel. She was telling him bits and pieces of what was going on with Barbara, what she was going through. Some of it included morsels of truth. Some of it were flat-out lies. After that visit Barbara had made the night Rachel failed to come home by curfew, the manner in which her mother conducted herself, having caused a scene at his home, that gave Rachel everything she needed to convince Ian that her mom was hell-bent on making his life and his family's life a nightmare. And he pretty much told the same story that Rachel told. In essence, he was taking this bullet for Rachel in order to protect her, telling the detectives, she didn't need to be locked up or anything. I made her come with me. So if I can get her back home to her dad, where she belongs. But detectives and now the prosecutor who had been assigned to the case saw Rachel for exactly what she was. A manipulative woman who used Ian Allen, and now that she found herself in hot water over the murder of her mother, he was essentially useless to her, and she had not a problem throwing him under the bus because she simply had no use for him anymore. He did what she had manipulated him into doing, which was helping her rid her life of her mother and now she was going to throw him to the wolves in order to save her own skin, because to Rachel, people, even people who loved and cared about her like her own mother, people like Ian, everyone is disposable as far as she's concerned, and they become disposable when they are no longer of use to her. As far as the prosecutor assigned to the case was concerned, she believed Rachel Mullinex to be one of the most manipulative sociopaths she had ever seen in her career prosecuting criminal defendants. And not only does she believe Rachel had a hands-on participation in the killing of her mother, it was an attack that she took the time to plan and set in motion, an accusation that Rachel would vehemently deny. Even though she had been caught lying about being kidnapped, this, Rachel insisted, was the truth. She had not a hand in Barbara's death. Why should she be believed? Well, according to Rachel, really look and evaluate the evidence. 
They have no proof that I killed my mom because I didn't. One look at Rachel, it may not be that easy to believe that the seemingly sweet, soft-spoken teenager conspired with her boyfriend to kill her mother, the woman that Rachel would describe as a vital, central figure in her life. Would a jury believe this? Hard to say. But Rachel would have the chance to plead her case, as both she and Ian were headed to trial, albeit separately, for the murder of Barbara Mullinex. By 2008, trials for both Ian and Rachel were looming, and Rachel continued to push the narrative that she was under the complete control of her then-boyfriend, stating, Ian was the biggest mistake of my life. He was abusive. It was like I was property, and somebody was hurting his property or threatening to take his property away. It just was not going to happen. With the complete and unwavering support of her father Bruce behind her, Rachel would face trial first. What would the jury see before them? At that point, Rachel was still only 19. Was she this sadistic killer who helped take a knife to her own mother 52 times? Or was she the abused and ill-treated property of Ian Allen, who was helpless to stop him from stabbing her mother, forced to go along with him on the cover-up and disposal? The prosecutor painted a very unflattering portrait of the pretty teenager who sat across her from the defendant's table. Rachel Mullinex is an active participant in her mother's murder. She is no typical 17-year-old. This one is 17, going on 42. And Rachel's attorney, for his part, at first, he took on the case with the hopes that Rachel was innocent of all the allegations against her. But the more information that came out about the case against his client, the more he realized that he had a problem on his hands. At the very least, he knew that she was guilty of being an accessory to murder after the fact. The evidence of that was clear and concise. There would be no arguing his way out of that one. As for the actual murder itself, he would argue that was committed by Ian Allen and Ian Allen alone. But the fact that the jury would come to know and understand that Rachel participated after the fact, that was going to be a devastating blow to the case that he would make for Rachel's innocence. He was going to have to stand before these jurors, face them, and try to explain how it was that his client helped her mother's killer clean up, conceal, and destroy evidence, and dispose of Barbara in the manner in which they did by unceremoniously dumping her into Newport Harbor. The prosecutor had to come out swinging. The crime scene cleanup was extensive and took a really long time, especially getting rid of that mattress that they killed Barbara on. The thing had to have been completely saturated in blood, and they had to get that out of the apartment. And they took it to a location not far from the apartment itself, along with the box spring and set it ablaze. What was left of the mattress and box spring was recovered shortly after the investigation into the case had begun. This was a task that required the concerted efforts of two individuals. They had a huge mess on their hands, and they worked together to clean up and cover up. And how is it the prosecution knows that it was Rachel who was a willing participant in the cover-up effort? Well, 
Found on a nightstand in Barbara's room was a sponge. The sponge was yellow and it clearly had blood on it. It had been used to wipe up some of the mess made by the killing. Of course, the sponge held the DNA of the victim, but it also contained the DNA of one other person, a person who used the sponge to sop up the victim's blood. It was the DNA of the victim's own daughter, Rachel Mullinex. Those were the only two profiles recovered from the sponge, mother and daughter. But the one hurdle the prosecution had was that they really didn't have any definitive pieces of evidence that tied Rachel to the actual killing itself, any part of it as a matter of fact. They had no clear-cut evidence that she helped plan the killing, setting the plan in motion, and physically taking part in the stabbing of Barbara. So is it possible that Rachel is to be believed? That the planning and execution of this murder was carried out by Ian Allen alone? Detectives and the prosecutors would say no. One look at the text message thread between Rachel and Ian leading up to and following the killings speaks to Rachel's complicity. And the detective on the case having said, not if you read all the text messages, no. In the three days leading up to the murder, there were over 460 messages from Rachel to Ian's phone. And he would point to one specific message from Rachel to Ian as being demonstrative of Rachel's participation in the plan. It read, we have two options, run or Tuesday, or there's another option. You can come over and apologize to my mother. The key words here were run or Tuesday. Tuesday stood for the plan they had made, the plan to be carried out on Tuesday, the plan being Barbara's murder. Ian would not be coming to apologize to Barbara, and they would run, and they would also carry out their Tuesday plan. Barbara was murdered on a Tuesday. And how did Rachel explain away this damning text message? Typo. This message simply contained a typo. She meant to say run on Tuesday, not run or Tuesday. Her only plan was to run away from home. If Ian had other more nefarious plans in mind, she was completely unaware of it. Ultimately, of course, it's going to be up to the jurors to decide what they make of that text message. Innocuous typo or code words for murder. Her defense attorney knew that they were going to need to hear more than just him explaining away all of these circumstances pointing at Rachel's guilt. They were going to have to hear from her. She was going to have to take the stand and explain herself. And she did. She tried to tell her version of what happened the night her mother was stabbed 52 times as she slept in her bed. She told the jury she had a plan to run away from home with Ian. She was waiting for her mother to doze off and that she would call Ian and he would come pick her up and they would take off together. Instead, his plan deviated. When he arrived at their house, he let himself in and appeared at Rachel's bedroom door. Seeing him there startled her, and the momentary commotion caused Barbara to wake up. She threw her bedroom door open and began yelling at Ian, demanding to know what he was doing there, and then followed that up with a threat to call the cops, 
and tell them that he was attempting to kidnap her daughter. Rachel went on describing the scene for the jury. She turned around, walked back into her bedroom. I just assumed that he was going to go in there and try to calm her down before anything happened. But I heard a struggle, so I went in there, and I walked in, and I see my mom on her bed, and Ian is stabbing her in the legs because she's trying to kick him off. But the medical examiner who conducted Barbara's autopsy, Sean Enlow, would take the stand and directly contradict Rachel's versions of events. He told the jury that the victim was stabbed more than 50 times, and from his examination of each wound, he was able to determine that at least three different knives were used to stab Barbara. One was a folding pocket knife that Ian was known to carry. There was a knife with a significantly longer blade used, which was never found. And of course, the butter knife that went through Barbara's eye and pierced her deep into her skull. Enloe stated in his testimony, I believe it is more likely that it was two assailants than one, and it could have been as few as maybe five minutes for the whole encounter, but I don't know for sure. Not so, says Rachel. She wasn't involved. But when asked about what she witnessed when the stabbing was going on, she would say that she did not remember. When she was asked how or why it was that a single assailant would be using three different knives, Rachel had no idea. She blanked on the whole thing out of fear and terror, and her mind was consumed with trying to pull Ian away from her mother. And she would say that she tried mightily, but it was all in vain. Rachel had participated in the interview with CBS as well, and she was peppered with provocative questions. How did you manage to not get one single cut on you if you were really trying to fight Ian? Well, he wasn't trying to stab me. He was trying to stab her. You don't know that she's dead. Maybe there's a chance to save her. Did you try to call 911? No. Did you take her pulse? No. Did you try to run for help? No. Rachel would say she was under the forceful control of Ian who threatened her with a gun. But the prosecutor believed that there were countless opportunities that Rachel had to have either run for help or called for help and she did neither. As a matter of fact, after Barbara was dead, Rachel stayed at home in the apartment alone while she waited for Ian to dispose of evidence. It took him four hours to get rid of all of the incriminating evidence. All the while, Rachel sat at home waiting. According to phone records, Rachel picked up her phone during that time once and made a single phone call. She didn't call Bruce. She didn't call police. She didn't call 911. She called Ian and she sent him a text to tell him that she loved him. The weakest part of the prosecution's case against Rachel is that there is no physical evidence that definitively pointed to Rachel as having a knife in her hand and participating in the actual stabbing. Rachel's hopes were riding on that fact. And the hopes that the jury would not believe the innocent-looking young teen was capable of committing such a crime. Rachel's friends didn't believe it either. Nobody knew her believed that she would have done something like this to her mother. Rachel loved Barbara, so says Rachel. So, if that's true, if Rachel truly loved her, how could she have done this? 
CBS had a child psychiatrist take a look at Rachel's case and the trial, as well as an expert that the defense called who diagnosed Rachel as having borderline personality disorder. The psychiatrist absolutely believed that Rachel loved her mom. And when she says it, it's true. And it's heartfelt. But on the flip side of that, Rachel also carries with her a tremendous amount of hate for her mother as well, especially when Barbara would do things that exasperated Rachel. Rachel would be prone to behaviors indicative of impulsivity, destructiveness, and self-destructiveness without any concern for the future, for the long term. People with borderline personality act in the moment, and they are often overwhelmed with fears of abandonment. Rachel was driven by the fear of losing Ian, and she was on a path to do whatever it took to not allow that to happen, even if it meant ridding herself of the one person who was trying to stand between them, Barbara. Rachel was willing to murder in order to keep Ian in her life. The investigators and the prosecutors on this case brushed aside all of the psychobabble. There is one and only one word needed to describe Rachel Mullinex. Evil. The detective on the case even said she was hands down the most evil teenage girl he'd ever encountered in his life. And the fact that Rachel being so young, it was actually terrifying how criminally savvy she really was and is. The prosecution meticulously laid out their case against Rachel, and much of the following that I'm going to tell you from here on out comes from the actual court documents related to the case. Barbara's murder was described in graphic details, how she was stabbed, how the knife was still embedded in her when her body was discovered in the harbor. Ian's folding knife was found wrapped with her body in the bedding. They recovered the cardboard box that Barbara was placed in, it had been sealed up with duct tape, and Rachel's DNA was found on that tape. The jury was told how Rachel's relationship with Ian started and how it evolved. Her parents did not approve of their relationship because of their age difference, and Barbara had at one point threatened to file a report against Ian for statutory rape. After that, Rachel had both of her parents sign the agreement that she was allowed to date Ian Allen but things would continue to be contentious between Rachel and her parents, all of it having to do with Ian. Neighbors had reported on at least one occasion that Rachel and her mother were witnessed arguing in the parking lot of their complex over Rachel trying to leave with Ian. Rachel's dad, Bruce, testified that most of the fighting between Rachel and Barbara was over Ian. He also told the jury that Barbara was an alcoholic and when she would drink, she was verbally abusive towards Rachel, to the point where police needed to be called on a number of occasions to intervene. A neighbor from back when Rachel and Barbara lived in Oklahoma testified that they had contacted police in 2002 because Rachel had come pounding on their door telling them that her mother had attacked her, and they had seen a bite mark on Rachel's back. As these neighbors were speaking with Rachel, her mother showed up soon afterwards, and she was clearly drunk and angry. Rachel later admitted to the investigators on that case that she made up the story that her mom had attacked her. In 2004, Rachel and Barbara were living in Tampa, Florida. A Tampa sheriff's deputy was called to testify to a 911 call he had responded to. 
there was a report of an aggravated assault at Barbara's residence. When he arrived, he encountered Barbara crying, nervous, and upset. And she was, for the most part, uncooperative. He took down her name and she indicated that she had been attacked by her daughter, who was not home at the time. Barbara provided him with her cell phone number and he called her and she told him, yeah, they fought and she left. That was it. And she proceeded to hang up on the deputy and refused to answer his follow-up calls. The deputy did file his report with the county prosecutor, but charges were never levied against Rachel. The jury was told about the incident where Rachel had failed to meet her 1 a.m. curfew and Barbara responded by showing up at Ian's house. Barbara woke up Ian's mom and harangued Rachel in front of her and Ian, accusing Rachel of being on drugs before making her go home with her. It was at this point Rachel was forbidden to see Ian anymore. This was four days before the discovery of Barbara's body. Entries from Rachel's diary referring to the incident that night at Ian's house were presented in court. She wrote, We woke up at 1.20 at his house and rushed out the door. And when we opened the door, my mom was standing there. I was humiliated. I wanted to die right there. Before this happened, like a week or so ago, my mom showed up at his job and got him fired. I wish she could just let me be happy. On September 10th, three days before Barbara's body was found, Rachel wrote, She's crazy. She threatens me every day, all over Ian. Either she's threatening to do something to me or him, and it's constant. I have HPV, stage 1, which is a common STD amongst teens and 20-somethings, though now there's a vaccine for it. She's saying she is going to Ian's mom to tell her about it. What bull... She has no right. This should be my decision to tell someone that, not hers. She's such a bitch. One day she will threaten the wrong person and they will beat the ever-living out of her. In another entry, Rachel wrote, Life and death. Life, death. What does it mean? Some people get great lives. And some people, well, do you know what the kids with bad homes do? They cut, do drugs, commit murder, burn themselves, cause harm to others. They say turn to God. Give me a break. God does not control life, and he does not control death. So try to survive in this horrible world, life and death. On the 8th of September, Ian requested two days off of work, the 12th and the 13th. That would be the following Monday and Tuesday. He told his boss that he needed to help either his girlfriend or her mom, that one of them was moving and he was going to help. But the boss couldn't quite recall which one Ian said he was going to help. On the 11th of September, Ian attempted to call a friend of his, Ryan Wofford. They did not get in touch with one another until the following day, Monday the 12th. He told Ryan that he was going to a party at his boss's house and he wanted to know if he could give him and Rachel a ride home sometime between 2 a.m. and 5 a.m. on the following morning, Tuesday the 13th, because he and Rachel planned to drink and would not be able to drive. His friend told him that he couldn't do it, but Ian persisted and offered up gas money. Ryan finally relented. On Tuesday, September 13th, sometime between 3 and 3.30 a.m., 
Ian called Ryan a number of times to see where he was at. Ian directed him to a street corner in the city of Corona del Mar. When Ryan arrived at that intersection, both Ian and Rachel were waiting for him. He found it odd that neither of them appeared to have spent the evening drinking. And what's more, for the entire ride home, Ian repeatedly instructed Ryan to slow down, that there's lots of cops around, and they didn't want to get pulled over. He dropped both of them off at Rachel's apartment. Barbara's Volvo was later discovered parked just a couple of blocks away from where Ryan had picked Ian and Rachel up in Corona Del Mar. A neighbor who had a common wall with the Mullinex apartment was awakened from sleep sometime between 2 and 3 in the morning. This neighbor described hearing sounds like banging on the wall and the sliding glass door that exited to the back patio. The neighbor heard a male and a female, and then what sounded like two females fighting. The neighbor was about to call police, but suddenly it got quiet. Another neighbor was awakened around the same time in the morning, this time by what sounded like a screen door being slammed shut. Then this neighbor heard a noise that sounded like a box being dragged along the pavement. He next saw two individuals near Barbara's Volvo, and he knew one of those individuals to be Rachel. The other, he did not know who it was. He witnessed one of them close the back door of the Volvo, as it was a station wagon, and they got into the car and drove off. Then at approximately 7 in the morning, the same neighbor witnessed Ian leave the apartment complex with several trash bags in the bed of his truck. Bruce, out of town at the time on business, tried to call both Barbara and Rachel sometime on the morning of the 13th, though he was unable to reach either one of them. At approximately 9 a.m., Ian arrived at his work site and asked if he could throw away some stuff in the company dumpsters. According to one employee who encountered Ian that morning, he looked as though he was sweating a lot and doing some hard work. This employee proceeded to help Ian dispose of several black trash bags. Investigators were able to recover those trash bags that Ian threw out, and among the items they found included Barbara's purse, her wallet, identification, checkbook, credit cards, makeup, and other various personal effects. At 11.49 a.m., Ian used Barbara's ATM card and withdrew cash from her account. A few hours after that, he used her card again to purchase gas along Interstate 10, just outside of Indio, California. That same morning, a call was made reporting a small fire near some railroad tracks in Huntington Beach, just a quarter mile away from the Mullinex residence. Firefighters arrived at the scene and extinguished a mattress and box spring that had been set ablaze. This mattress and box spring belonged to Barbara Mullinex. A search of the apartment revealed nothing out of place anywhere except for Barbara's bedroom. Blood was discovered on the head and footboards of the bed, the walls, the mini blinds, both nightstands, and on the carpet. Of course, the mattress and box spring were missing, and the bed frame had been broken down. Blood was also discovered in the hallway, near the stairs, on the landing wall, and on the front door. A box of latex gloves was sitting on the kitchen counter. A bloodied yellow sponge was found in the bedroom as well. All of the blood was tested and matched to Barbara, but the sponge contained the DNA of both Barbara and Rachel. 
I have already gone through how the investigators tracked Ian's credit card to that gas station in Louisiana and how they subsequently arrested the couple in Lafayette Parish on September 15th, two days after Barbara's murder. They were soon extradited back to California. When Rachel was being booked into the Huntington Beach jail, she told the officer booking her that she was in fear of her ex-boyfriend, referring to Ian, of course, who I guess now is her ex. She repeatedly asked them to promise her that they weren't going to let him do her harm. 30 minutes later, in what was a setup to see what these two would do, detectives arranged for both Ian and Rachel to be placed in the back seat of a patrol car. Inside the patrol car, a recording device was hidden to capture any conversations the couple would have. On the recording, Rachel told Ian, If you go to prison and I get out, I'll wait for you. She asked him, Did you tell them you kidnapped me? He answered, They did not buy that for one second. She suggested that he plead insanity while assuring him this, I don't hate you. I'll never hate you. I'll love you till the day I die. Do you understand that? If I make bail and get out of this somehow, I'm going to change my identity and change my appearance and I'll come see you. And numerous times throughout the recording, the device captured both Ian and Rachel telling each other, I love you. Text messages between Ian and Rachel were presented to the court. Rachel's text message activity directly contradicted her testimony that she had gone to sleep on Monday, September 12th, around 10 p.m. Ian's phone had received a whole string of text messages from Rachel's phone, including one at 10.15 that said, I think my mom went to bed. He answered, That's good. It must be quiet. The texting never stopped between the two up until 1.45 in the morning, Rachel sent a text that read, she woke up and she locked her bedroom doors. Ian, I don't care what I have to do in order to be with you. Nothing's going to take you away from me. Let's text for now and give my mom time to fall asleep. The couple would exchange no text messages between 1.45 and 6.28 a.m., at which time Rachel's texting activity picked back up again when she texted him. I love you. He responded back, I love you. At 6.32 a.m., Rachel texted, Are you in trouble? He answered, Nope. And it was at this point that I believe that Ian was back at his house, printing up that map to Tampa, Florida, and possibly getting the gun from his house to take with them. Rachel's jury deliberated for three days before returning with a verdict of guilty of first-degree murder. Three months later, she was sentenced to 25 years to life in prison. She will be eligible for parole in 2030 when she is 41 years old. To this day, Rachel would continue to insist the only thing that she is guilty of is dating the wrong guy. I didn't do it. I know I didn't do it. My mom knows I didn't do it. Bruce continues to stand by his daughter. He will never stop loving her and never stop believing in her. But even with him in her corner, the only person Rachel continues to be concerned about is herself. 
Never mind the fact that she still remains the apple of her father's eye, that she shattered his heart into a million pieces. Rachel could not care less. What do I have to look forward to? The dreams of me wanting to have a family and getting married and going to college, they're gone. Today, Rachel resides at Central California's women's facility. She is 29 years old. In September of 2008, Ian Allen was also convicted of first-degree murder. Two months later, he too was sentenced to 25 years to life in prison. He is currently housed at Chukawala State Prison. A parole eligibility date has yet to be set. He is 33 years old. And as for Bruce, last I found, he continues to reside in California where he works for a nonprofit organization called United Cerebral Palsy of the North Bay, where he creates work programs for people with disabilities. And that brings this 85th episode of California Dreaming to a close. If you would like to discuss this case in more detail or any others that we have covered, please feel free to request and join the California Dreaming official Facebook discussion page. There we have cultivated an amazing community of listeners and true crime fans who share their thoughts and opinions on all of our cases that we cover, as well as other true crime stories, current events, TV shows, documentaries, books, Whatever you would like to share, please come and join us. You can also follow the show on Twitter at CaliforniaPod and on Instagram at CaliforniaDreamingPod. And California Dreaming is proudly brought to you by the Orbital Jigsaw Network. We are a podcast production company that is located in Los Angeles, California, with a mission to create some of the best podcasts to listen to, to consistently improve upon our roster of shows, to develop new content that appeals to people all over the world and to provide a thriving community for listeners and podcasters alike. And I am so proud to be a part of this amazing group of shows and hosts. So please visit us at www.orbitaljigsaw.com. You can also find links to all of our shows, our merchandise store, our blog, or if you just want to email us and let us know what you think, that's www.orbitaljigsaw.com. Don't forget to subscribe to A Sickness in Time on your favorite podcast directory. And also, if you're into creepy stories, then take a listen to the most recent episode of Rev96, a podcast hosted by Justin Rimmel. I had the honor of reading one scary story for his show, so please go and check that out if that's your kind of thing. Thank you again so much for listening. I am your host, Roseanne, and until next time, sweet dreams. <laughs>